I want you to turn with you in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Now last Sunday, we saw how Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He had a nightmare. He's desperate to know what it meant. He wasn't content for, with uh, guesses or any kind of chicanery or any of that kind of thing. He wanted to know, what does this dream mean? He's apparently repeated dreams that he's having and, and being the leader of this great empire, Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fear because he, he understands, for, for whatever reason, probably because of the Lord, uh, he understands this dream has implications for me. And so he's troubled by it. He needed to find out what it meant. Now, guessing the interpretation of a dream is one thing. Like, you could tell me you had a dream last night, and I could guess what it meant. It might meant you had too many burritos last night. <laughs> or it can mean something else entirely. It may not mean anything. Guessing's fairly easy. But if you told me, I don't, you tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means, boy, that's a whole lot harder, right? And that's, that's what Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted his wise men to tell him what he dreamed and what it meant. Well, they couldn't do it. In fact, they were that they acknowledged the fact that there was no man on earth that could do what Nebuchadnezzar was asking his wise men to do. They rightly pointed that out. But that didn't satisfy Nebuchadnezzar. He sent for his chief executioner, a man named Arioch, and he sent him, and it was time to hunt down all the wise men, round them up, and put them to death. And when Arioch showed up at Daniel's door, we're told that Daniel, you remember, he responded in what way? He responded with prudence and discretion. Oh my God, help us to be a people of prudence and discretion. We need to be a people of, of wisdom and wise with how we use our mouths. God help me. But Daniel wasn't dismayed. I mean, death is knocking at the door, literally. But Daniel wasn't dismayed. He wasn't in despair because he knew that his destiny rested in the hands of a sovereign God. I just fear, I, I, maybe fear is not the right word, but I'm troubled by how worked up we get with news of world events and how dismayed we become when we're supposed to be trusting in a sovereign God. A God who has everything under control. There is absolutely nothing that happens in our lives, in our nation, in our world that takes God by surprise. God never is startled. We are all the time, but God is never startled. And Daniel was not, he, he was able to not be startled, not be dismayed. Instead, he boldly went in before the king requested that Nebuchadnezzar give him some time, something Nebuchadnezzar had already declined to do. And Daniel said with assurance that he'd come back and he'd give the king what he wanted. That was faith. And we saw how Daniel went to his three friends, asked for some prayer support. They prayed. Daniel went to sleep. And I believe Daniel was able to go to sleep because he trusted in the sovereignty of God. He trusted in God for deliverance. And because Daniel lived his life in that, with that kind of faith, moment by moment, trusting in the Lord, he was able to go to sleep. One man put it this way. He said, faith, which is trust, 
and fear are opposite poles. If a man has the one, he can scarcely have the other in vigorous operation. He that has his trust set upon God does not need to dread anything except the weakening or the paralyzing of that trust. And I don't need to tell you this this morning because you know it, I think, but I just want to remind you this morning that our enemy is always at work doing his best to paralyze our trust in God. So he's, he's working through the circumstances of our lives whether it be COVID or whether it be some, something else in your family or a temptation that comes your way, the enemy is always at work doing his best to paralyze our, our trust in God. Because he knows if he can get us to go into fear, he's got us right where he wants us. The presence of hope and the invisible sovereignty of God drives out fear. God's in control. And he's in control of my life. I was joking with my wife last night. I'm, I'm about to turn 40, and I'm feeling kind of old. I turn 40 next month. And I was joking with her last night. I said, my life's two-thirds of the way over. And for whatever the reason, that really tickled her. I have no idea how much time I have left. And my life may be two-thirds over. It may be 99.9% .9 over. I have no idea. None of us do. But I have hope in the sovereignty of God. And so I have no reason to fear turning 40, right? Amen. <laughs> Ben's 40 already. He beat me to it. So no reason to fear because we trust in God. Amen? Amen. So Daniel went to sleep sometime in the night. God woke him up from his sleep with a vision. Following the vision, Daniel immediately went to the to, on to praise the Lord. He praised God, and that's kind of where we left off last Sunday. Daniel returned praise and thanksgiving to God. Now I want you to look with me at verse 24. Is this thing working? All right. Sometimes I get more feedback up here, and I, I can tell it's working, and then other times I'm not sure. So, all right, Daniel 2, verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. That's a pretty good way to term it, remember? Because Nebuchadnezzar had said, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. So Arioch was literally set out to destroy the wise men. And so Daniel went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Now I just want to pause here and just, just notice where Daniel's concern is here. Right here, Daniel has a really good opportunity to eliminate any competition. Remember, he's one of the wise men. We find out later that some of the other wise men become jealous of Daniel. We'll find that out later. I mean, here's an opportunity to get rid of all these worthless men who, who couldn't tell the king his dream. But the first thing Daniel does... It says, he says to the chief executioner, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. That shows us something, I think, about the character of Daniel. I know you all work in workplaces, and the, it's always about getting ahead, isn't it? Daniel wasn't concerned about getting ahead. He was a man of character. Verse 25, then Arioch brought in 
Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, he says this to Nebuchadnezzar, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian name, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now, just contrast here for a moment. I just mentioned the character of Daniel. Contrast his character with the character of Arioch. What does Arioch do when he goes before King Nebuchadnezzar? The first thing he does is he wants to, he wants to pat a pound on his own chest, and he says, look here, Nebuchadnezzar, I found this guy among the exiles of Judah. Now, Arioch, his life was probably at risk too. I mean, he's the chief executioner, but that doesn't mean he can't be executed. And the king's given him a task to do. But he's, he's taking Daniel in, and he says here, he's looking out for number one. And then the king asked Daniel if he indeed is able to reveal his dream and its interpretation. Now notice again Daniel's character. Here's his chance. Here's his opportunity to get ahead. All he needs to do now is reveal the dream and its interpretation, and he can claim all the glory for himself, but that's not what he does. He tells the king, there's no wise man, there's no enchanter, there's no astrologer, there's no magician, there's no one who can reveal what you've asked for, Nebuchadnezzar. But who does he say can? He says there is a God in heaven. Now there's two, two main things that I want you to get out of this morning's message. Now the, the two main things that I'm going to tell you to take home with you are pretty basic, or may, at least on the surface they may seem pretty basic, but I want to remind you of these two big truths this morning. And first of all, the first big truth I want to remind you of is there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. There is a God who is above all earthly so-called gods. Again, I, every Sunday we drive past the little, the little temple out here by the interstate. And they're, apparently they're getting so many gods now they're spreading out into the parking lot. And it's just a man-made, worthless piece of plastic or whatever it's made out of. It can do absolutely nothing. But there is a God in heaven this morning who has everything under control. Daniel tells him there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now it's been said that Daniel's answer here is a masterpiece of setting the matter in its proper light and giving God the glory. And I'd agree with that. Because Daniel wants Nebuchadnezzar to know who's in charge. So instead of glorifying himself, he glorifies God and he emphasizes what's been called the cardinal principle of the Bible. And that is there's a God in heaven. 
And I want you to understand this morning, there's a God in heaven who not only exists, but there's a God in heaven who spun this world into orbit. He's the one who keeps it all together. Now, scientists will try to tell you about all the scientific processes and everything else that keeps this world together. But let me tell you something this morning. There's a God behind those processes who spoke it all into existence and created it all. There's a God in heaven who reached down and from the dust of the ground shaped humanity out of the dust of the ground. We don't exist this morning because there was some cosmic bang sometime millions of years ago. We don't exist this morning because there was some kind of slow process of evolution after that cosmic bang that where nothing, where something was created out of nothing. No, that's not how it happened. No, there's a God in heaven who spoke it all into existence and on the sixth day of creation molded man out of the dust of the ground and he breathed life into him. And not only did this God in heaven create humanity and create it all, but he called it very good. But then when Adam and Eve turned away from God and sinned, God wasn't surprised. It wasn't a shock to God when Eve ate that fruit. It wasn't a shock to God when Adam went along with her. It wasn't a shock to God when every human being who's ever been born since then committed sin as well. You see, from the very beginning, there was a God in heaven who had a plan to deal with the problem of sin. And there's a God in heaven who loves you so much that He sent His one and only Son and let me tell you something this morning. There's a God in heaven who isn't surprised by any of the sins you've committed. And there's none of the sins that you've committed that God has just been blown away and said, oh no, what am I going to do now? No, there's a God in heaven who he knew before you were ever created every sin you would ever commit. And when he laid down his life on the cross, he shed his innocent blood for every sin that you've committed. I meet some people sometimes who think that they've committed far more sin than God's grace could ever take care of. But I want to remind you this morning, there's a God in heaven who has the solution for the problem of sin in your life. His grace is sufficient for you. And also, I want to remind you this morning, there's no problem that any of us face. There's no resource that we lack. There's no problem we have. That we don't have a God in heaven who can supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory. He's a God who is there and he's a God who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than what we could even ask or think. Now, I can get the ask part because sometimes I just stop asking. But the thinking part, I mean, I can think pretty far. But God can do more than I can even ask or think. You see, this morning there is a God in heaven. And Daniel reminds Nebuchadnezzar of that fact. And he reminds Nebuchadnezzar of the sovereignty of God. He gives God glory. And then look at verse 28. He says, Your dream and your visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. 
to you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than, any, than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So again, Daniel's making clear to Nebuchadnezzar, I'm not the source of what you're looking for, Nebuchadnezzar. There's a God in heaven who is. Verse 31, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there it is. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I kind of imagine as Daniel begins to tell Nebuchadnezzar the details of his dream, Nebuchadnezzar's eyes just got wider and wider. He really knows. Nebuchadnezzar had seen this giant, bright, terrifying statue. And he understands it means something. I don't know, maybe the statue looked like him. I have no idea. But Nebuchadnezzar was terrified. He's the greatest king living on earth. He keeps having this dream. What does it all mean? So now Daniel's told him his dream. What does all that mean? What's all these different materials that make up the statue? What's it all mean? This rock that, that crashes into the statue and then the wind that comes and blows it all. What's all this mean? And so in verse 37, Daniel begins to give the interpretation. Let's back up to 36. Daniel says, this was the dream. Now we'll tell the king its interpretation. And now Nebuchadnezzar's kind of scooting up in his, on his throne here. He's on the edge of his seat because now he, he knows, Daniel knows, and he wants to know what does this mean. O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given whether they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, and the, birds of, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, mm-hmm, you got that right, Daniel. I'm the head of gold. But then he remembers, wait a minute, there's some more parts to the statue. God had given Nebuchadnezzar Everything he possessed. Notice, that's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you possess all of this, but the only reason you've got it is because the God of heaven gave it to you. You're just a steward of what God's given you. 
Now, I don't know this morning, and I'm not getting back into politics, I promise, all right? But I don't know this morning what's going to happen in the next few weeks. We might end up with President Trump again. We might end up with President Biden again. I don't know who it's going to be, but I'll tell you this. Whoever it is, it will be because God has entrusted them with the presidency of our country. Now, it may be for good and it may be for judgment. I don't know. But I know this. God's in control no matter what happens. So how do we react? We don't despair. Remember, Daniel's, a, Daniel's taken away into captivity in a foreign land. They've been conquered. I mean, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah has been decimated. They're under judgment. And God's using Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment. Remember again, the book of Habakkuk. And all through the Old Testament, all through the prophets, God told them judgment's coming. Babylon's coming and they're going to bring judgment. And now it's happened. And Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven gave you all this. We're just stewards. Everything you own, everything I own, everything you possess, you're just a steward. What are you doing with what God's given you? Are you being found faithful? You know, elsewhere in Scripture, we know that we're told that, you know, some are given much, some are given little, but what's required of all of us? That we be found faithful. To invest what God has given us into building His kingdom. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about everything about us. We belong to God. Are we using what He's given us and are we being faithful stewards? Now, in a very real sense here, Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian Empire. He reigned for 43 years. And after his reign, the kingdom of Babylon only lasted about 23 more years. And for 66 years... The Babylonian Empire ruled the Near East. So that's, that's the extent of the Babylonian Empire. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar was happy to hear that he was the head of the gold, he was quickly dismayed to find out that there was another kingdom coming that would arise after him. Because look at verse 39. Daniel tells him, Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And he had a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partially of potter's clay and partially of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom shall be partially strong and partially brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So here now Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar of some other kingdoms that was going to come after. Well, the next one will be Persia. We find that out later in Daniel. Led by Cyrus the Great and later Darius. This chest... And arms of this great statue, silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. And they would dominate for approximately 208 years. 
Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. The Babylonian Empire, the head of gold. The Persian Empire, the chest and arms of silver. But then a third kingdom would arise. This kingdom was the bronze middle. The empire of Alexander the Great. In 332 B.C., the armies of Alexander the Great marched against the Medo-Persian Empire, defeated it in a series of battles, and then for 185 years, the Greek Empire dominated. And then, in the year 146 B.C., the Roman Empire, the Roman armies defeated Carthage and Rome, and then would come the legs of, the legs of silver. Now, did you notice anything about those kingdoms? Every one of them got bigger. Did you notice that? The Babylonian Empire, the head of gold, was actually the smallest of all four of those. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that the kingdoms following his would be inferior to his. But in what way? How are they inferior? Because every one of them is larger. How are they inferior? Well, I think there's probably multiple ways, but one of the ways is that there's simply something degenerative happening in human history. Human history is not progressing. In fact, we're degenerating morally. We're not going to arrive at some utopia no matter what any politician may ever tell you the fact of the matter is we're just headed away from god despite how advanced we get in technology and everything else we're just disintegrating but what about the feet and toes that's four kingdoms what about the feet and toes well, look at verse 41 again. See here, these feet and toes, partially iron, partially clay. What's that mean? We'll get there. Let's go to verse 44. I'm going to hold you off on that for a minute. Look at verse 44 here. There we are. Does it show verse 44? I can't see. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in, in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, there's something else going to happen, Nebuchadnezzar. I told you there was two big things I want you to remember this morning. I want you to remember there's a God in heaven, and I want you to remember there is a kingdom coming. Now, there's a debate among scholars concerning the timing of the kingdom, the prophecy of Daniel. Did, did all of this prophecy get fulfilled when Christ came the first time? Or is some of this prophecy going to be fulfilled when God comes, when Christ comes the second time? My answer to that question is yes. That's my answer. Some of it happened when Christ came the first time. Some of it's going to happen when he comes the second time. 
The important thing for us to remember this morning is there is a kingdom that's coming. There's a stone here. Now notice some things about this stone that Daniel talks about. This stone he talks about would be supernatural in origin. Daniel mentions it would be cut out by no human hand. Remember now, Daniel's using symbolic language here. And he talks about this stone that's going to come, that's going to destroy all of these kingdoms. And it's going to be supernatural in origin. It's going to possess extraordinary power. It's going to be powerful enough to wipe out all of these other kingdoms. Extraordinary power. And this, this kingdom, this stone would be a kingdom that would be worldwide in scope. This stone, he says, grows and becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Now again, symbolic language, most likely, the kind of rock that grows, a shelf rock, gradually becomes revealed and grows and grows and grows. This stone would be a kingdom that would be worldwide in scope, and it would be eternal in its duration. It would never be destroyed. It would stand forever. Now, what is the stone? Who is the stone? When did all this happen? Well, I told you that, does it all, did all this happen at Christ's first advent, or will it happen at a second advent? My answer is yes. Because Christ's kingdom is both now and not yet. That's something we have to understand when it comes to prophecy and all of this, is it's both now and not yet. In chapter 7 of Daniel, we'll see another vision that Daniel has. And the vision of Daniel chapter 7 confirms the number and identification of the toes here that Daniel talks about in the statue. There's four empires in chapter 7, just as there is in chapter 2. And in chapter 7, there's ten horns that grow out of the fourth horn of the beast. Now, before you all get lost here in the symbolic language and all of that, the fourth beast, who was the fourth kingdom? The fourth kingdom was Rome, right? That was the fourth kingdom. Out of that would grow ten kings. Ten kings, ten kingdoms. I believe that both happened back in with Rome. But I tend to also believe that probably in the future will also come a, some kind of ten kingdom confederation. I don't understand all that. And I don't want to dig deep into prophecy this morning. But what I want you to understand is this stone and this kingdom began with Christ's first advent. Now, there's a lot of reasons I believe that, but let me just point out one big reason, Luke chapter 20, all right? In Luke chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable, and he's telling a parable about himself. And he says this, he says, a man planted a vineyard, and he let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. 
and then they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at him and said, what then is this that is written? The stone. Now he's quoting from Psalms here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Sound familiar? And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Who was the stone? The stone is Jesus. The one that the builders rejected. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Remember? Jesus, when he came, he inaugurated, he began his kingdom. But it's not yet here in all of its fullness, right? His kingdom is both now and not yet. So 500 years after Daniel, Jesus comes to earth. The kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, Greece are long gone. Now Rome rules the world. The angel Gabriel announces his birth to Mary, and he said, He, Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So when Jesus came, Gabriel says, Your baby, Mary, of his kingdom, there's never going to end. It's never going to end. 30 years later, Jesus begins his ministry, and he proclaims the good news of God and he said the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is come near so so you see when Jesus came his kingdom began Jesus said if it is by the spirit of God that, that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come to you how did Jesus cast out demons by the spirit of God his kingdom had come but the kingdom's not come in all its fullness has it the Romans were still in charge when Jesus was here the first time. They crucified Jesus, and it looked like his kingdom had come to an end. It failed. But Jesus rose again, and when the disciples saw the risen Jesus, they asked him a question. They said, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? You see... There's an already and a not yet. What do we do in the meantime? Well, Jesus answered his disciples when they asked him that question. He said, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. And instead of satisfying their curiosity and answering their question, instead, what did Jesus do? He gave them a mission. And he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the kingdom of God was to begin to spread to the ends of the earth. We live between now and not yet of Christ's kingdom. His kingdom is now. He's come and he's won the battle over sin and death. But yet at the same time, we wait 
We wait his second coming when he will reign over his kingdom in all of its fullness. But meanwhile, what we are to be doing is spreading the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And as we spread the gospel message to the ends of the earth, I can tell you this, there is no kingdom on earth that will ever stop the spread of the gospel message. There may come a time in our country when what I'm doing right now may be outlawed, but you know what? They won't be able to stop the spread of the gospel message. They've tried it in Russia. They've tried it in China. And what's happening? The gospel message continues to explode. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The gospel of the kingdom will go forward and the kingdom will grow. And let me just remind you something about prophecy as we're beginning to get into a little bit of prophecy. Let me just remind you that the main purpose of prophecy isn't to answer all of our questions about the future, but to enable us as God's people to live right now in the present in light of the future. A lot of people love prophecy because they love all the speculation. But I don't believe God gave us prophecy so we could just make all kinds of set around all day long speculating about the future. God wants us to live right now building His kingdom. And as Peter put it, we have something more sure. I'm not going to take time to read all that. Read First, Second Peter chapter 1. He says, we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Right now we live in the midst of a dark world. But we shine as lights in the midst of a dark world. And we are to live for the kingdom that is coming. So Daniel gives this prophecy, or this his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He tells him there's a kingdom coming, Nebuchadnezzar, and it's going to destroy all the man-made kingdoms, earthly kingdoms. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, Micah chapter 4, verse 1 the rock symbolizes a mountain. Remember this rock was going to grow into a mountain and then into the whole world, overtake the whole world? Isaiah 2, Micah 4 talks about this mountain that would grow to be the highest of all mountains, the cleansed and holy Zion. And there in the new Jerusalem there would be, we're told in the book of Revelation, that night will be no more. They'll have no need of the light of a lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and forever. So right now we shine as lamps in a darkened world. But there's coming a day when there's going to be no more night. Amen? There's a God in heaven. There's a kingdom coming. So Nebuchadnezzar hears his dream and his interpretation. So what's he do? He falls on his face and he pays homage to Daniel. And he commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods 
and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king. Now, again, Daniel here, he's not interested in his own promotion. He's interested in the promotion of others. So now Daniel's been promoted. And so he makes a request to the king. And so the king appoints Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So Nebuchadnezzar hears his dream and its interpretation. He falls down. He gives praise to Daniel. And he recognizes that Daniel's God is the God of gods. And the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't converted. Nebuchadnezzar was impressed with Daniel's God. But he doesn't give up all his gods. He just wants to add another God along with his. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was like a lot of people, and I'm wrapping up. He was like a lot of people I know. They're willing to give lip service to God, but they're not willing to turn over their lives to God. There are all kinds of people that go to church every Sunday. There are people who read their Bible every day and give lip service to God, but they're not willing to turn over their lives to God. They know the true God. They know there's a God in heaven. They may even believe He has miraculous powers, but they've never come to know Him in a personal, committed way, where they give up all their gods and worship the one true God. You see, when we hold on to sin with one hand, and try to hold on to God with the other hand. We're simply paying lip service to God. We're not converted to Him. So my question for you this morning is, have you surrendered your life to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? There is a God in heaven. There is a kingdom coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? My life may not be two-thirds over. Yours may not be either. It may be 99.9% over. There's a God in heaven. You're going to give an account. I'm going to give an account. And our only hope is if he's king of kings and lord of lords of our life. That's it. I want you to stand with me this morning. If you're here this morning and you're like Nebuchadnezzar, you acknowledge there's a God in heaven, but He's not king of your life. I want to give you an opportunity as I close in prayer. If you have a need, the altar's open for you this morning. Lord, I thank You. I thank You, Lord, that You are king. You are Lord. Lord, you taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, my desire for my people that you've given me as an overseer is that every one of them would be able to pray that out of the sincerity of their hearts, that they want your kingdom to come and your will to be done 
in their lives. And Lord, You know those that are here this morning who can't say that because there's sin in their life. And Lord, if there's those that are here today that are not living their life for You, they're, they're living for other idols, Lord, I pray that You would help them to lay down their idols and come to the foot of the cross where they'll find mercy and grace. Jesus, we thank You for loving us, for giving Your life for us. Help us, Lord, to live for You and to be the people that You want us to be until Your kingdom comes in all of its fullness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.